responsible to you. Yeah. Good to be there. Yeah. yeah. Well, good morning again. Um, I, I have the, the sincere pleasure. Um, I'm Pastor Todd, one of the pastors here, and this morning, um, Ryan Kennedy is sharing with us, and um, I can't even put into words what a dear brother he is. You know, Proverbs says there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and um, I, I, I'm joyful because you get to experience some of that this morning in the way that, that God will use him this morning, and I know that, and uh, he doesn't like me saying that, but he'll get over it. Um, but, but Ryan and his family kind of showed up, um, and they're from Michigan, and, and just entered into to my life, and, and I thought, man, just what a blessing, you know, that they would speak to my family, and, and just the way that they came alongside us, even in some dark moments of our lives. And, and then I heard their story, and I was like, and I suck as a friend. <laughs> they have an incredible testimony. And, and what the blessing is, and I hope that you see today, is, is that, just like I pray, the gospel is not a one-time event. But their lives and their testimony has shown me continually that the gospel is lived out every single day. And that it can be a blessing and bring glory to God every single day. And um, so that is my hope and prayer. So I, I do want you to clap for him. He's not going to like that either. So that's definitely why I want you to clap. Yeah, for Ryan. Thank you. Good morning. <clears throat> Two things. I need your grace this morning. And... I need you to open your Bibles to Mark 5. So in front of you, we have two different, one of two different kinds of Bibles. One's a softback, and I think Mark 5 is on page 490, and the other one's a hardback, and I think it's on page 840. But I want to encourage you to open up the Word today and join us. We were in Mark 4 last week. It's a story that we're familiar with about Jesus calming the storm, coming across the Sea of Galilee, and, and we're going to pick up in, in the first 20 verses of, of Mark 5 this morning. So, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gesserines, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out, of the, came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Eric asked me to pray or to give this sermon two months ago, and it has been a process that has been a huge blessing for me. Um, I have given this message 30 times. 26 of them have gone really, really well because they've remained in my head. Four of them uh, I've shared with other people in preparation for this, and, um, and they haven't gone well. The first one was an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, the second one was so lifeless, I was bored as I gave it. Um, same with the third one, and the fourth one happened last night. In preparation for today, my wife and I uh, spent a couple hours going through it, and again, I got through it last night, and there's not a lot of life in it. And what I realized is, is that I am drawn to head knowledge, and I'm drawn to preparation, and I'm drawn to study, 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 study. There's not a lot of life in that. And so this morning, I have nothing other than a bunch of facts, right? I can tell you that uh, from uh, Capernaum in Mark 14 to uh, the Gesserines is 10 miles, and 10 miles is roughly the width of the bay, um, of the Chesapeake Bay. And I can tell you um, that when we get into always cutting and crying, right, that there's this death and suffering, and that can take us into Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, I can give you facts and facts and facts, but I don't think that there's a lot of life left in that. And so I'm in a position this morning where <clears throat> I'm going to share the testimony of my son because <clears throat> if we finish out what I'm supposed to preach on today in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might go with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Facts. There's 19 miracles in the book of Mark. 12 of them, Jesus doesn't say anything. Six of them, he says, go. This is the only one that talks about mercy. And I could go on and on and on about that. But the point I want to get to is the reason I'm up here, because I was trying to quit this two weeks ago is Jesus commanded him to do it. He commanded him to go. And he commanded him, <coughs> excuse me, he commanded him to tell 
And to tell what? To tell of his mercy, right? So what is mercy? Mercy is God's tenderness, his tenderheartedness toward those that are needy and in misery. And so with that, I need your prayers, and I just want to pray a second, and then I'm going to get in and tell you a story. So, Father God, this morning I have been aware of so much suffering. So much suffering in this body and so much suffering that's in this world. And there's a freedom in you that comes out of that suffering. My prayer for these people this morning, Lord, is while we're all so aware of our suffering and our hurt and our need and our misery, that you have mercy in abundance that flows from you. It's your essence and it's freely offered. And that we may, as a body and as a group of believers, just receive it. And then in receiving it, that there would be a freedom. A freedom to keep putting one foot in front of the other, Lord. A freedom to be the hands and feet of your church. So I pray for that. Amen. All right, so I'm... uh, active duty in the Navy. Uh, I came to the Naval Academy where I'm stationed four years ago, but previous to that, I was stationed down in, um, in Norfolk. And uh, I joined the Navy later in life. We didn't join for a full career. We joined for uh, a short amount of time in my job I thought was going to be to deploy to Afghanistan at least once and to support a bunch of Marines and Navy folks that are over there. And, uh, and so this tour in, um, in Norfolk was everything that I had thought I was supposed to do. So we rolled into Norfolk in December of 2011 and uh, immediately found out we were pregnant. So we had three, my three oldest children that are here. We, uh, I guess I can say, had left the door open for a fourth because we didn't quite feel complete as a family. And as soon as we had moved the week before Christmas, we learned that we were pregnant again. They have to understand that my wife is a phenomenal pregnant lady. And And I say that not because she's in the audience. I say that because she is phenomenal. She has this boundless strength. She loves her children. She goes and she goes and she goes. And January, I reported to the command and I would come home every day and she hadn't gotten off the couch. And in my heart, I was angry. I was disappointed. I mean, what kind of person would do that? But I had this high expectation that she, I think, largely had set for me and so come the end of January, uh, we knew something wasn't normal. We knew that this wasn't going to be a normal pregnancy. She has multiples in her family line, and so we thought that we were going to have twins. And um, she went to uh, our first checkup at week 11. She came home. I stayed home with the other kids, and she came home, and her face was super puffy from crying. And uh, she walked in the door, and she walked over to the table and slapped down the ultrasound, and there were three three babies in there. And, uh, and that means as much to you as it did to me. Like, holy cow, right? 
We didn't sign up for any of this. We weren't trying to get pregnant anymore. We certainly hadn't taken any fertility drugs, and yet that was what we were on, um, on for. So we knew that this was going to be a high-risk pregnancy. We knew that we were not guaranteed any babies. We knew that the risk to the mom could be incredible. Uh, and we started off and put one foot in front of the other that way. So you can imagine Patty still having three young children at home and then growing three baby humans inside of her and what that did for her. And that takes us to May. May was week 26, 27. <clears throat> and, uh, and she called me from work and she said, uh, I'm having contractions, I'm going into the hospital. So we went into the hospital and uh, trying to keep a very long story short. Um, she never left. That was it. She was in there for a week. She was in there for a week, and, uh, and they finally um, uh, delivered the children through C-section uh, on week 27, right? So a baby in week 27 is about as long from your fist to your elbow. The body is about as wide as your arm, and the head is about as big as your fist, um, the babies, all three of them, were a pound 10 ounces to a pound 12 ounces. Um, I share that with you uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it helps put perspective in when we talk about the uh, sanctity of life in, in, in the culture. And two, just to understand um, where they started from. So... Uh, so they were born, and the, the hospital was great. It's this children's hospital. There are specialists in, in, you know, what they do in the nation. Few other hospitals do. And, of course, we were blessed to, to, uh, to have that be our local hospital. And uh, the boys were born. Uh, they take the mom. Mom, of course, went through major surgery. There were 37 people in the delivery room. 37. I know that because I had no purpose whatsoever. So I counted and took pictures. <laughs> Each baby had a team of 10, and then Patty had a team of seven, and, and so you can imagine it was major surgery. And so they say, hey, we've got the babies. Give us a couple of hours. We'll get them cleaned up, and then you can come see them. And uh, we know now the reason why they do that is at a pound 10 ounces. A pound 12 ounces. There's, there's a high probability that it's not going to work out. And I came to learn that uh, they had to resuscitate each baby three, four times in those first couple hours, right? So <clears throat> we've got pictures. I'm not going to show you any pictures, but we have pictures of going to see them. And their entire hand wouldn't span two knuckles, right? And they had these little fighter pilot oxygen masks on, you know? <laughs> yeah, fighter pilot, right? That's my boys. And, uh, and that was the end of May, right? So they were born on the 31st, and that was the end of May, and then we head into the summer. And in the summer uh, was their third trimester spent in machines. So everything that they would have done inside mom, they did on the miracle of, of modern medicine that we have, and of course, I praise God for that. And, uh, and our life was me at work and her being a mom to three kids, and then she, her mother... My mother-in-law, praise God, was able to come spend the entire summer with us. 
And so my father-in-law was able to take care of himself all summer. And he, he gave us the gift of his wife of 50 years and, and she gave of herself. And that helped keep a very busy household going. You can imagine what it's like to have one child in the NICU and then have three and then have three more at home and on and on and on. And so our life for the, the summer were high fives at the hospital. I would get out of bed at four. I would be at the hospital from five to six with the doctors. We would make our rounds. It was very clinical. And then I would head off and do the job that I thought I was supposed to be doing. And then Patty would get up there. And of course, she is the primary caregiver for them. So she would be able to hold them and put them on her bosom and everything else. And then I would come back and we would high five in the hospital. And I would go home and feed the kids and get them in bed and everything else. And she would sit there all evening with them and rock with them. And we just tried to love them throughout the summer. And then August came, right? August was their due date, and they started coming home one at a time. They were all home by their due date, but now you can, and the summer was over with, and my mother-in-law had to go back to work. So that's where the work started. I mean, to have one baby, right? One baby can keep you up at night. Um, we had three babies, and if it was your night on, uh, you slept on the floor in the nursery, because if it was your night off, you were at the farthest corner of the house. <clears throat> and you just try to get as much rest as you could. So, you know, to take care of three infants is, is a sum total of two hours of sleep. And it's not this block of two hours of sleep from one to three. It is seven minutes here and eight minutes there and, and on and on and on. And that got us from August, September, October, November. I mean, that was five months going into December. So um, a side story is that in utero, you don't need your lungs, right? Not a lot of oxygen in the womb. So God designed a valve in the heart. And that valve stays open, right? And it circumvents the lungs. So that blood flow circumvents the lungs. And then when you're born, brain secretes uh, a hormone and that hormone closes that valve, right? And then we start using our, our, our lungs to pull oxygen out of the air and then to pull it into our bloodstream. And, uh, and in 10% of adults, that valve never closes. It's no big deal. It just means that your heart's less efficient than, than it would normally be. I think we find it, you know, super high-performing athletes that we spend a lot of money on. But for the most part, you can go through your whole life. You just have a less efficient heart, but you don't really know any different. But if you're two, three pounds, it matters. And so... Uh, you know, they found that all three boys, their valve hadn't closed because that part of the development hadn't happened yet. And so they have a process. The process is a steroid that they inject. And, uh, and if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, then we do two more versions of that. And if that doesn't work, then we go in for open heart surgery. Okay, open heart surgery on a baby that size is, I mean, smaller than a walnut. I can't imagine doing that. And I can't imagine that being done to anything that I care about. So we have three boys. <clears throat> the, first round of, uh, the first round of steroids works on one of them and his uh, valve is closed. And then we go back for the second round and the second round worked on the second boy, Anderson and Reagan. And his heart closes or his valve closes in his heart. And we go around for the third round with my son, Brennan, who is the middle one in between Anderson and Reagan. And it didn't work. That's fine. I mean, it didn't work. By this time, 
we had such a tolerance for drama and medical news that it was fine. We'll just go in for open heart surgery sometime in December and we'll, um, and we'll pick up from there. So uh, we had an appointment um, a week before Christmas for his pre-op. And they were going to come in and walk us through everything that was going to happen with his, uh, with his surgery. And then we would roll into Christmas. And, uh, and we went in there. And it was one of those times where the doctor takes a look at everything and then walks out. And then comes back in with another doctor. And two people are looking at it. And then they walk out and they bring in a third person. And they look up from the file and they said, you know, Miss Kennedy, I don't know how to tell you, but his valve's closed. Right? He doesn't need surgery. And he did that all by himself, right? He healed, well, God healed his heart, but he closed that valve all by himself. And that took us into Christmas. So Christmas, we were all sick. And uh, her family was able to come across the, uh, the country from um, Iowa and, and Omaha to stay with us. And that was great. My family celebrated Christmas down in Charlotte at my sister's house. Her family rolled out of town. Uh, my family called and said, hey, we'll take you any way that we can get you. Would you please come down and just spend Christmas with us? Of course, we hadn't slept in a long time, and we thought, you know what? As long as they don't mind a bunch of sick people coming into their house, we would like to be around family for the holidays, and we could use the extra set of hands, right? So we rolled down into Charlotte, <clears throat> and we spent New Year's in my sister's house, and now we're in January 1st, January 2nd. And we went back to life as normal. Life as normal was obviously trying to get at least one kid bathed, maybe a set of teeth brushed on a daily basis, right? I mean, a pretty low bar. We still have that low bar. <laughs> um, Kiernan was three, two and a half, two and a half. So Kiernan now became the middle child, right? He was the baby. The baby has a certain place in the family. And then, and then these triplets come along. And so now he's like third in the pecking order, which is to say he's a rounding error, right? Um, and he has grown from that point in time to be almost the center of gravity in our family. But he was struggling to get to sleep at night. And so Patty, exhausted on the night of January 9th, it was a Wednesday, and uh, it was business as usual, and Patty went in and put all the kids to bed and ended up crawling into bed with, uh, with Kiernan and sleeping. So at the end of our hallway were three kids, my wife. In the middle bedroom was the nursery with the three boys. I was downstairs picking up, and Brennan woke up. So I ran upstairs, and I grabbed Brennan. I pulled him out of the nursery because I didn't want him to wake up his brothers and start that whole cycle, and I laid him in our bed. And that was at 8 o'clock, and I know it was at 8 o'clock because I went downstairs, and I cleaned everything up, shut the house down, and came back upstairs at 8.45 to get to bed by um, 9 o'clock. And when I walked into my bedroom, Brennan was perfectly face down. And what I mean by perfectly face down is try and lay with both shoulders on the mattress and be comfortable. Like, it's, it's not a naturally physical thing to do. If you roll over in the middle of the night, you're not going to end up touching both shoulders. And, uh, and that's how I found them. And I rolled them over, and the gravity of the situation hit home. He was absolutely lifeless. He had this gray-purple color to him. Um, and he responded... Um, he responded to me touching him. I started smacking him across the face, trying to wake him up, and he twitched a little bit, and then he spit up, 
And I thought, okay, this is good. And then the gravity of the situation set back into me, which is he's probably been without oxygen for 45 minutes. There's no coming out of that. I had my phone with me. I called 911. I walked down that hallway and got Patty out of bed. And you can imagine being woken up in the deepest of deep sleep to your spouse saying, get up, get up, get up. And that walk down that hallway had to be this long. It's not a good thing. I'm not waking her up for good news. And she made that walk down that hallway. And you can imagine the tragedy that she walked into, right? As a mom, you can imagine walking in there and knowing that whatever's happening is not good. Being a military family, when you have multiples, they make you take infant CPR. It's not, a, it, it's, it's not a choice. And so we had gone through infant CPR. And we trained in the military that in a high-stress environment that you rise to your lowest level of proficiency, right? So if you're a big talker, all that goes out the window unless talking is all you know how to do, right? Patty walked in, coming out of a deep sleep, and grabbed her baby, put him on the floor, I went right into infant CPR. I was trying to get 911 on the phone. The fire department is, I would say, literally behind our house at that time, but they had to drive a mile to get there because we lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. And at the end of um, our outside lights that night weren't working. All the bulbs had burned out. So I'm standing there in the doorway while I hear my wife crying and trying to resuscitate our son, and I see all of the first responders at the end of the cul-de-sac. Can't signal to them. I mean, I'm yelling in the phone, but I can't wave my hands, can't pull them down. And so finally, they figured out where we were, and they came down, and they rushed upstairs, and they took over as they do. And they grabbed Brennan, and they pulled him out into the driveway, into an ambulance, and they worked on him. And that cul-de-sac had 13 first responder vehicles in it. So you can imagine now it's 9 o'clock, 9.30 at night. You can imagine how many lights are going on. And the neighbor started coming out. We were blessed with an angel of a neighbor, and I mean that literally, who came in. She went right upstairs and just kind of kept watch over our kids. We held each other in the middle of the cul-de-sac and prayed. We prayed to release Brennan. We prayed that... Brennan was never ours. He was God's. And that whatever God would do with this time that we were okay with, we prayed that he wouldn't be in any pain. And all of this is happening while they're working on him right above our shoulders. So Patty hopped in the ambulance and, and rode to the emergency room to be with her baby. I walked inside to detectives detectives that were very methodical with what they do, right? So they were sitting up. There was three of them sitting up in my bedroom. They were very, very nice, but you can tell that they were, you know, running their analysis, making sure that there was no um, criminal aspect to this. And, uh, and I said, hey, with your permission, I'm going to join my family at the hospital. And I went to the emergency room by car, got in there. They took Patty up one elevator and they took me up an elevator and they do this separate interview just to make sure. The reason why I'm sharing all this with you is that's, that's hell for me. That's hell for me. It may not be the full hell, 
But to be going through what we were going through and then to have that lingering accusation over your shoulder. So we got into the emergency room and uh, they had restored his vitals in the driveway and on the way to the hospital. And that was it. Answer to prayers. Heart's beating again. We've got some life in him. And I noticed over the next two hours that no one was talking about him ever leaving. No one was ever talking about quality of life. Everyone was just talking about vitals and that the emergency room had done their job with vitals. So they uh, transferred him to the hospital that he was born in because they knew that he would be there long term. And we did another uh, ambulance ride to a new hospital. By this time, all the phone calls had gone out across the country. Um, My older sister and her family hopped in the car from Charlotte to drive up. And that was Thursday morning. And Thursday morning into Friday was a lot of waiting and a lot of watching a lifeless body with a bunch of machines going through. And this family that had just left town hopped back in their cars, drove back cross country. Patty never left the hospital, never left her son's side. Came to her in the middle of the night about organ donation. I don't know about you. I don't know your position on organ donation. I don't know what your driver's license says. I have to be honest with you, I had no position until that Friday. It was very clear to us that if he were to ever leave the hospital, he would have no quality of life. And there's a good chance that without the machines, there would be no life at all. So we approached the hospital about organ donation. They gave us all the paperwork, walked us through everything. They started doing testing on Brennan to see, um, you know, his blood type and his tissue type and on and on and on. We prayed Friday night for the next family. The next family that was walking into their tragedy. The next family that knew that was going to know what we knew. And Patty will tell you, if she could ever take that away from another mother, she would. So we said, you know what? Who are we to take all this work that my son did away from him? He healed his heart. How it was healed through Jesus, his effort. And who are we to take that from anyone? Saturday rolled around. Both families were in town now. We brought the other boys up to the hospital to get the gang back together one last time. So we have pictures of all three of them one last time in bed. And the family got to roll through and say their goodbyes. And the reason why I told you about Christmas and New Year's was 
that was the first time that many of them really spent time with Brennan. They all had individual moments with Brennan and individual memories. Saturday night was discussions of what Sunday was going to bring. There are legal and medical things that they need to do to determine that uh, body is not viable off of machines. Um, they are tests that you wouldn't, they're torture. I mean, that's the simplest definition is they're torture. They're trying to elicit pain in the body to get some sort of cerebral response. So they involve poking things that you would never want poked, and they involve freezing cold water and noises. They involve torture. And so our Sunday morning was spent watching this legal and medical process go through. And then they had said, we can, beyond all doubt, determine that he is not going to live off of machines. And he's yours to say goodbye to on your time. No rush. One of the things God did in that time frame is God started this process. It's a process of death. But there was a swelling involved. As his body shut down, the circulation didn't travel like it used to. And when we would embrace him and hold him and kiss his forehead, his forehead was cold. I understand that that detail is not an easy detail to hear, but you have to understand that that made saying goodbye possible. At this time, I had blamed myself for all of this. I spent Friday and Saturday laying on top of him, wailing, saying, I'm so sorry. What loving dad would want to deprive their son of oxygen for 45 minutes? And I thought he suffered. And I thought I was to blame with all of it. And I didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow. I just knew that it was a pretty bad time. Patty being able to do CPR and the first responders, God bless them, being able to get his vitals back gave me four days to say goodbye. Four days. I don't, I don't want to say goodbye. That's not on the menu. That's not an option that I have. And we had four days for the brain to slowly adjust to the new reality. And the new reality was that we were going to walk out of a hospital room for the last time until heaven. And when you have multiples and you lose a child, heaven forbid, you never go from twins down to a single baby and you never go from triplets down to twins. You always have triplets. 
You just have triplets with a void. Just a... So that was Sunday, 1.30. We said goodbye. Walked out. The whole medical process for organ donation came in. There's a lot of things that they do. I'm very grateful that we have that in our country, that we have this process. Monday was a hard day, but it was the first step of the beginning of the rest of our lives. And Tuesday, we went to the funeral home to make arrangements. Funeral home was a gift from God. They don't charge anything for infants. They'd give us anything that we needed to get through. We came out of there feeling good. Sat in the parking lot, and uh, one of the ladies from the organ donation organization called on her day off. Said, hey, um, people in my position don't normally make these phone calls. I'm on my day off. I certainly have never made a phone call like this before. But they found a recipient for Brennan's heart. It's a nine-month-old girl. And his heart was placed, and it was successful. And we left the parking lot after some prayer, and we walked into a house full of people in town for a funeral. They knew that we were at the funeral home making arrangements. We walked in, kind of all the eyes shifted to us, and we walked in smiling. We said that all the arrangements were made and that Brennan's heart had been placed in a girl that God willing will grow to give life herself someday. The end of the story is <clears throat> what you guys would call SIDS. The medical community calls unexplained death, which is just to say that they go through everything that they know and can explain and they couldn't explain it, so they chalk it up to unexplained death. And that, that period of five months before we moved up here to Denton, was grief and depression, like you can imagine. And in grief and depression, light hurts. Light hurts. Just seeing things hurt. It makes you want to close the blinds and stay in bed because there's a physical pain associated with it. And we still had three other children plus two other infants that needed to be fed it needed to be loved, it needed to be parented, and everything else. And we got out of bed every day, not on our own energy. I never understood prayer. I never understood, to me, it's, faith is very illogical, and you know that I approach things kind of from the mind first. But God took that five months and taught me about the power of prayer that we got out of bed every single day on the power of prayer alone and nothing else. Facebook and cards came in from across the country. We had people that bought us gift cards for dinner so we wouldn't have to worry about cooking. And we had uh, pastors from across the country share stories about sharing Brennan's story in their sermon. And we had people that are three degrees removed from us say that hearing what Brennan has done touched them. So what's the point of all of this? 
In Mark 5, I can't explain why the man was possessed. I can't explain what he was doing there shackled in a cemetery. I can't explain what demon possessed feels like, looks like. I see Jesus come a great distance through great peril for one person. He does what the man asked him, which was to get rid of the demons. And his mercy overflowed. And he found him clothed and in his right mind. And that makes me think about all of the mercy that we saw. My mother-in-law, his heart, Christmas, New Year's, our neighbor, the first responders, the four days, all of the nurses in the hospital, My sister coming up. Our family is reuniting. Donations that were made in his name. This is all God reaching out to us in our time of need and misery. I wish I could explain away suffering. I wish I could tell you that there's a direct thing that you can do to mitigate suffering and hurt. There's not. But I want to leave you want to leave you with a savior that didn't have to. And he did. In his tenderheartedness towards the miserable and needy, he not only clothed them, he not only put them in their right mind, he saved them from eternal hell. He saved them from being able to wake up one day and not to have to relive that night over and over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus knew when he saved this man and he clothed him and put him in his right mind that he was going to die so that when this man died that he too wouldn't have to go back to the tombs wouldn't have to live a life in eternity of cutting himself and crying out always. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I'm going to flip through God's grace to Hebrews 4, 16. Because that was...
a blessing. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your strength. I thank you that suffering exists only because in suffering we learn about you. We learn aspects and attributes of you that we would never learn. We learn of your abundance. We learn of your essence that it just flows freely from you. We understand that it is offered to us and it is always around us and it is ours to receive freely. So as we come up and we join in communion with you in this reminder that the ultimate act of mercy towards the miserable and needy is the fact that we can spend eternity without suffering solely because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. I praise you for that, Lord. I need that today. I need to know that there's something beyond suffering. I need to understand what hope looks like and feels like. I need to have hope. I need to be able to put one foot in front of the other tomorrow. And I need to be part of the hands and the feet of your church to offer mercy to others. be part of the restoration of a fractured creation. Jesus, we thank you for everything. We thank you for all of that. I've asked the worship team to just continue in this moment. That as we bow our heads, that you would Try and reconcile with Jesus in your heart. That you would not be defined by your sin. And that our lives would not be defined by our suffering. But that our world would be defined by the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that as we share communion with each other and share communion with Jesus. That we would leave and we would have a little bit more life and hope in us. Take the bread and eat.
from the cup. One more quick story. And the reason why I want to share it is it happened on Monday. Has anyone been to the Bible Museum in D.C.? I haven't. But my wife and three oldest kids went this week, and apparently there's a wall of donors, like a lot of museums do, and, uh, and so in this hall of donors are eight stainless steel, very tall and very big squares, rectangles. And this is the hall of, I don't know, donors, what's it called? Wall of honor, wall of honor. So we learned on our way, or they learned on their way to the museum that my mother-in-law three years ago got something in the mail and said, do you want to donate? And so she did. She made a donation in Brennan's name. And when Patty found that out, knowing that we had this Sunday coming up before us, she prayed. She just said, Lord, can we find his name? It doesn't change anything. How big are they? Really big? As you stand back, it looks like a sheet of stainless steel. And as you walk up, you can see etchings of designs and flowers and things. And as you get this close, you can see that all those etchings are the actual names. So the system, the way that they did it is they were going to take a million names. A million divided by eight is 125,000. Each one of those has 125,000 names engraved in it. There's a tablet. You can walk over to the tablet and you can punch in the name and it'll tell you which one it's on. It narrows it from a million to 125,000. <laughs> and my mother-in-law, how long did it take? 20 minutes. And right here on one of the panels is his name. That doesn't change anything. Our heart is still broken. There's still the void. And five years later, he still comforts us. He still answers prayer. He still gives us hope. So, as we head out in a week, the end of Mark 5... And Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I thank you. I thank you for letting me share a story. I thank you for letting my son's life live on in the only family that we have here. I thank you for your time and patience. And I pray for your suffering today. Go in peace.